This is The Sharp End, a podcast from accidents and North American mountaineering. I'm Ashley Sapi, your host for the show. So after the American Alpine Club and I launched this podcast on February 1st, there were over 1,500 listens in the first five days. So thank you. Anyway, welcome back to the show. This is the second episode of The Sharp End. I'll be talking with a guy named Blake Bowling, who I interviewed when he was cramped in his tiny little van while on a climbing trip in Waco. So you may hear him shuffling around and his voice cutting in and out as he talks. But that's fan life for you. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Blake. Uh, my name is Blake Bowling. I am a rock climber and developer in the red. I've been climbing in the red about 26 years or so. Um, I am a, the senior software engineer for the American Alpine Club. I do a lot of their web websites and web databases and such. I have taught for the State Fire Commission in Rope Rescue, Cave Rescue, and Swiftwater Rescue. And I was a captain of the uh, statewide rescue squad for about 12 years. Thanks for the introduction, Blake. I see that you have your own story published in the 2015 edition of Accidents. Go ahead and tell us about it. Well, September 26, 2014, um, I was working. I was in the Red River Gorge at my camper at, at one of the campgrounds there. And uh, I was just working. Did not expect to go rock climbing. And a friend of mine stopped by my camper and saw sit, you know, just to check to see if I wanted to go with him. And um, I'm like, sure, you know, I can I can bust out a, a couple hours for a few pitches. Plus the mother load is where I was working uh, a route called the Madness, and I was trying to make it my fifteen hundredth red point uh, in Red River Gorge. I was at about 498, I think, at the time, and it was, I was bouncing between two projects, the Madness and another route called Welcome to Oak and Tuck, and I was quite a bit closer on the Madness, so uh, I, was, I was kind of eager to put a, some more work in on it, you know, just uh, for a couple hours. Mm -hmm. So I... I wasn't ready to pack. I mean, I wasn't packed by, to, to, to go cragging at all. So picked up my trusty working rope. I'm going to pause Blake there for a second. And listeners, I want you to keep this in mind because the rope Blake chose to use will be absolutely critical in what happened to him that day. And it's kind of a 9.8 rope that I'd been using on this particular climb, you know, all season. Threw it in a rope bag. And we drove to uh, the mother load. We sit under this one route. I go up halfway, warming up. He tries to send it. We pull the rope. I, you know, I go up halfway. He tries to send it. And this, you know, kind of goes back and forth until I'm warmed up um, or he's sent. Um, but we pick up the rope bag move it over to the base of the madness. I start climbing on it. I feel really good. There's a rest about halfway up. I'm, I'm feeling pretty strong, getting the beta dialed in. Do the upper crux, um, which is, this route is about 120 feet long. And so the upper crux is the third to the last bolt. So it's pretty high off the ground at that point. Um, I, I knew I wasn't trying to send the route that day, so I clipped in direct. So I'm hanging from the bolt, kind of brushing the, the crux. It's got a little boulder problem up there. 
I don't know what V grade it might be, but it's definitely a, a little of a boulder problem. So I'm brushing those holes. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I get back on the rope and, and do the crux and continue climbing all the way to the anchors. Um, I, I knew I wasn't trying to send them, so I, I, I was pretty happy about it. I'm, I'm thinking in my head, you know, I clip, I clip the anchors, and my belayer, you know, takes up the extra slack. He starts lowering me. Um, <clears throat> and in my head, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm pretty close on this thing. A couple more days of work, and given the right conditions, um, maybe, maybe I eat right, maybe the stars are aligned, I don't know, it might go. So I'm feeling pretty good. I'm actually chatting with him as I'm being lowered, and um, <clears throat> I get about 40, 45 feet off the ground because the ground actually um, go, it goes downhill from the base of the crag, so it, you know, it slopes away. So where the anchors are, it's, you actually are lowered past the belayer. Right. And the madness is a, a 13C it's probably 20, 25 degrees overhanging net, so it's pretty steep. And about 40, 45 feet off the ground, uh, I feel this. I feel the bottom drop out of my rope. And I've been climbing long enough. I kind of just thought that it was a a, uh, a jerk in the rope or a little pigtail on on the, my blayer's end as he's lowered me from a gree And so I really didn't think anything of it too much until I realized that I was still falling. Blake told me later that he remembers the sound the carabiners made as they slapped the rock when the rope zipped through them. I was, um, I, I was in the air long enough to upright myself. That's one of the problems uh, with being, I was being lowered you know, a nice straight line. I wasn't swinging side to side. It wasn't from a fall. So uh, your center of gravity is back a bit so you're you're reclined and if i'd hit that way i'm pretty quite certain that i would have hit one of two large boulders that were there my head would have hit one of those if not my back and um i, I don't know how how bad the impact would have been but i was i kind of had enough training or intuition or full-blown luck that i was able to upright myself and hit legs first and that um, absorbed the majority of the, of the impact actually had knocked the breath out of me had two uh, bruises on my chest where I'd knocked the air out of me wow um, and I broke uh, my right wrist it was backwards about four inches below the wrist um, and I broke my back uh, compression fracture in two spots on my lower back from the impact from the impact, yes. Okay, okay. So you're laying there now, and your head is perfectly in between two rocks. Yep, it was so close that uh, as I tried to turn to look around, I hit one of them with my nose or you know my forehead. It was that close. Were you wearing a helmet? Was not wearing a helmet. Um, uh, in the red, it's very rare to see a climber wearing a helmet typically you don't hit anything there's nothing to fall on top of you that that's the argument right whether it's a good argument or not that's the argument but i'm sad to say i did not have one on that day okay and so and and then what blake so you're laying there you realize your your wrist is is 
pointing the wrong way. <laughs> your back hurts. Um, and you, you've just realized you've fallen 40 plus feet. What happens next? Well, um, I, I've been an uh, EMT, a registered uh, EMT. I've, I've not done very much ambulance work, but with the, the rescue side, it was beneficial to be an EMT. So with some medical training, I realized that um, I'm probably going to be alive for a minute or so, and that's probably about it. So you got all the, uh, all the things that run through your head of uh, being, you know, got a minute to live. What, what are you going to do? Uh, my back was in such excruciating pain, I didn't, couldn't think a whole lot to do, but um, it definitely was in the back of my mind that probably, you know, my friends, my, my good buddies that are, the, you know, especially the, the climbing community, I was, one of the things that went through my mind was they're going to see me, you know, die and they're going to have to carry me out. And that's, luckily that part didn't happen. My buddies did carry me out, and I'll tell you, that was one of the most embarrassing, humbling experiences of my entire life. They carried you out in a Stokes basket? Yeah, just a litter. You know, it's a basket um, because I was unable to walk. They just strapped me to it. The rescue squad come. They strapped me to it, and all of them, all, you know, half climbers and half uh, rescue personnel just carried me out to the ambulance. How did the rescue squad know to come and get you? Uh, so... Luckily enough, the we were talking, my, my friend and I, we were talking to a couple that were from uh, California when we were warming up. And I think one of them was a ranger or a guide in Yosemite Valley, Tuolumne area. And I find out later that he had a sat phone with him. And when he heard me scream on my fall, he immediately just picked up, turned on his sat phone, and called 911. And um, I, I found that out later that he didn't even he didn't even come to check. He just heard something, heard me hit the ground, and turned on his phone and called. And uh, there are a few cell phone services that were at the at the that you do get at the mother load, but. Um, I thought it was kind of, I don't know, funny is not the right word, but he just picked up his phone and called. He didn't even check. Was there a long wait before your rescuers got on scene? It really felt like I did not wait very long at all. It really felt very appropriate. And, and been in rescue situations before, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. Kind of, you know, you get there and you have to wait. Well, I feel that they got to me really quickly considering all the equipment they were you know bringing they didn't know what you know um, what condition I was in I'm sure you know they, they have to kind of expect everything so they they had litter box or you know a, a Stokes basket all the fluids and IVs that kind of thing so for them to get there as quickly as what I feel that they did I think it was very appropriate one of the nice things was a, a friend of mine is a paramedic in um, Cincinnati. He and his wife were climbing in the area, and he heard of the accident. And he came and quite literally was by my side what felt like one minute after I hit the ground. And he have, him having more medical training in 
true trauma situations than anybody else at the crag combined it was a it was a pretty big comfort to me because he was able to pretty much do a complete exam uh, external exam make sure you know my back wasn't sticking out I wasn't bleeding to death externally um, and he really helped mitigate the shock I was going into shock in and out just on the edge of it because I'm I know what shock is, so I was able to kind of warn him and give him the look, and he was able to kind of mitigate. And that that shock also made my back spasm even more. So that was one of the biggest pain things was the back spasming. How did that but, go being in a Stokes basket? If, you're, if your back is spasming, you being strapped down, did that work okay for you? No, no, it didn't. <laughs> it was... It really, it really hurt. Uh, one of the things they try to do is limit your mobility because they don't want to induce any other injuries. And luckily enough, I had no neck injury, no spine, uh, upper, uh, well, neck injury that I was able to talk them out of strapping my head down as well a little bit. So they gave me a little bit more motion than they, that they wanted to in my head. And that allowed me just to kind of keep moving my shoulders, which helped not lock up my back too much. Let's talk about what went wrong. What went wrong? Uh, the, the short of it is my rope was too short. Okay. My rope was too short and my belayer did not, um, did not see or did not catch that the end of the rope was coming. And he let it slide through his hand and through the grigri. Um, I wasn't I wasn't really prepared to climb that day. I didn't know which rope to take. I had two brand new eighty meter ropes, and I chose to take my old, older working rope that was a cut seventy. I actually thought it was a cut eighty. I found out later, I did some, you know, looked through my receipts, that kind of thing, and found out it was a cut 70. That made perfect sense. That's why I fell about 40 feet, 45 feet. Um, but I kind of picked it up, threw it in a rope bag, not what we consider closing the system. I didn't tie a knot in it. I didn't tie it to the rope bag, either of which would have completely prevented this. And when we get to the crag, I throw the rope bag down. We climb on the same end while I'm warming up and while he's trying to send his project, we kept climbing on the same end. So the rope never got rotated. It never got any, there was no reason to inspect the rope on the other end. And, um, and then when we moved to my project, which was a much longer climb, um, I'd already been using this rope for this climb all season. The only new difference is that I'd never clipped the anchors and lowered from them. I'd always lowered from one of the previous bolts, usually the crux bolt, which is the third from the top. And I had no problems. It was long enough to do that. So it kind of set up in my mind a complacency because, A, I've used this rope on this route before. B... Um, the rope bag and the rope was always in that position. 
it, it just kind of sets up a confidence, a false confidence. It's always worked. So why is this time any different? Mm-hmm. And the only thing um, that my Blair had to do was I was talking to him and, you know, it, it distracted him from what he was doing. So at me being excited as I was being lowered, cause I was, I was thinking to myself, it's really close. I can, I can send this route pretty soon. And I was excited. I was talking to him, taking his attention away from, you know, basically the only thing that he needed to be doing and the rope ran through his, through his hands. I just want to comment really quick on how I think it's pretty interesting that Blake doesn't actually blame his belayer, but he blames himself for distracting the belayer. Now, of course, the belayer shares some responsibility, but I think it's an important point that there is a shared responsibility in a lowering situation. I'm, I'm sure it was a, a, a mixture of, of reasons. It's a super long route. He was lowering me, you know, at a decent speed, not long, not fast, not slow. It was just, it was very appropriate. And I think uh, taking some attention away from it, you know, by talking to him, you know, added to it. So there, there's these, you know, six or seven things, they're really small and are individual things. But when they line up just right, um, bad things happen. So you're saying if the system was closed, this never yep. would have happened? Absolutely. There's, there's no reason whatsoever not to have a knot in the end of the rope. I know there's an argument there that, you know, we can argue with Alpine, that kind of thing. But uh, I think those, those situations are so rare that um, it's easier just to say you always tie a knot in the end of the rope. Closing the system. You always close the system. Always. There's no reason not to asterisk, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what else? What else could you have done differently to make this situation turn out in a different way? Uh, there's a lot of things I've, I've thought about. Um, you really need to know the route, know your equipment, and I was I was under the assumption that I did know it. You know, it's a false assumption. I'd used this rope on that climb before but I now know that that rope was too short um, I know that when I move ropes from one tarp to another that they immediately get tied to the tarp if if I had not talk, been talking to my belayer you know distracting him maybe he would have caught it um if I hadn't climbed all the way to the anchors and lowered from where I always lower from, this wouldn't have happened. And at that point, um, I probably would have switched ropes because the rope I was using was a heavier workhorse of a rope. And I, I would have been using a much lighter, thinner sending rope from then on because I think I, could, you know, I would have been going actually for the send. So that rope is an 80 meter. I would have been fine. Between my belayer and I, we had 52 years of climbing experience, of rock climbing experience. And this still happened to two people that are typically very attentive. We're quite into safety and techniques and procedures, and, and it still happened. 
And that's to me is the scary part because this can happen to anybody. This is a dangerous activity that we partake in. We, we let these things line up and it almost cost me. So this incident nearly cost you your life. What else did it cost you? Uh, being an accident is really expensive. I had a lovely, <laughs> I had a lovely flight in a helicopter. Um, we were, we were concerned that I was going to lose my arm um, because of a, a uh, I think it's called compartment syndrome, where enough swelling was uh, might cut off the circulation, much like a tourniquet. So the the decision was made to be medevaced out. So the ambulance took me to the basically top of the hill near Beattyville, and I was uh, helicoptered out. It was 19 minute flight. It's a lovely little flight, blue skies. That's all I got to see was the sky. <laughs> it was, um, I'm sorry, it was, it was 19 minutes. It was 59 miles, and it cost me, um, the, the bill that I received was $40,000. Oh, my gosh. You could put yourself through college. Yes, I know. I know. It was a, it was a very costly, very costly mistake. It, it's, I mean, I got to own up to it. That's the only thing. That's the only thing you can do. That's you know, right. this is a this is a teaching teaching moment. This can happen. So, you know, if 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 it if get one person, well, I'm not. I'm going to be greedy. If I can get two people to start tying knots in the end of the rope, um, it'll be worth it. Thanks, Blake. So now I'd like to offer the listeners some stats and hopefully drive Blake's point home. Based on the incidents that were reported in AAC's book titled Accidents in North American Mountaineering, over the past decade, the four most common causes of lowering accidents are 1. A rope that's too short 2. Miscommunication 3. An inadequate belay 4. Anchor failure Rope too short, leading the charge by 52%. 366 rappel failure lowering errors have occurred in the United States from 1951 to 2013. In 2014, there were 16 alone. You'll have to get the 2015 edition of Accidents to get the most current stats, but in the meantime, here's something to think about. How often are we lowering our climbing partner? We tend to put a lot of emphasis on the climber, when in fact, the data shows substantial accidents occur during the lowering phase. So let's shift our focus from the climber to the belayer. And it doesn't matter if you have 52 years of combined experience or 52 years of personal experience. If you flip to the stat table on page 127 of last year's book accidents, you'll notice at the very top, there were 39 reported accidents that occurred in 2014 from experienced climbers, which the AAC defines have over three years experience. While in contrast, there were only five reported accidents the same year for climbers with little to no experience. Okay, okay. Did I make my point? Anyway, thanks again, Blank, for sharing your incident with the world so others can learn from it. I'd also like to thank all the listeners for tuning in. That means you. And finally, I want to say thank you to the American Alpine Club. You can find Blake's story online by searching Blake Bowling, Kentucky at publications.americanalpineclub.org. It also appeared in the 2015 edition of Accidents in North American Mountaineering. 
Accidents in North American Mountaineering is an annual publication of the American Alpine Club with frequent online reports and updates. AAC members receive the book each year for free. To learn more, visit AmericanAlpineClub.org. Until the next episode, play hard and be smart.